0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project, and author of the bestseller Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman.
2: Alexis Smith and Pamela Carlton are co authors of a research project called Making the Invisible Visible, which is about black women professionals in the workplace. Alexis Smith is an associate professor of management at the Spears School of Business at Oklahoma State University. Her research areas span workplace issues like gender and diversity, as well as bias and discrimination. In 2003, Pamela Carlton retired as a managing director and associate director of U.S. equity research at J.P. Morgan Chase. She is a corporate attorney with degrees from Williams College, Yale Law School, and the Yale School of Management. Pam is president of Springboard. Springboard. Partners in Cross Cultural Leadership, which is an organizational consulting firm that assesses organizations for an inclusive culture, designs interventions, and provides independent advisory services. Springboard produced the groundbreaking report Black Women Executives Research Initiative, and Pam also co founded the Everest Project, which is a research initiative focused on leading change and innovation that produced. The Eve of Change, Women Redefining Corporate America. I spoke with both Lex and Pam about their research, about the dual challenges black women face in the workplace, being members of two minority groups who have been traditionally undervalued, underpaid, and invisible. Their research on successful black women executives highlights the ways these unusually resilient people who are able to defy the odds and attain a pinnacle of achievement, well, how they have lessons about careers and life from which all can learn. Mentors are essential, as is support from family and community, as these wonderful stories illustrate. Their uplifting conclusions. They really are quite optimistic, almost surprisingly. They point to the importance of seeing all experiences, large and small, positive and negative, as opportunities to demonstrate competence and excellence to others and to ourselves. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, I would so much appreciate it if you would please rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcasts so others are more likely to find and enjoy it, too. Now, get set to listen to and learn from Lex Smith and Pam Carlton as they share the big ideas from their research on successful black women in the workplace and the wisdom they glean from it about how to overcome obstacles and barriers. Lex Smith, Pam Carlton, welcome to Work and Life.
1: Thank you, Stu. Thank you very much. Happy to be here.
2: All right. And I'm going to ask you both to say your name as you're speaking, because it's going to be important for us to know who indeed is speaking at different times during the conversation. Uh, I appreciate your taking the time to to join us. Um, You know, across nearly all segments of the workforce, women, despite equivalent education and experience, earn less than men. And... A similarly sad story is true for black men who regularly earn less than white men. So what is the story for people who fall into both categories of the underappreciated, the underpaid, the underrecognized? What do black women do? How do they fare in the workforce? Give us a a high-level picture of that story either Lex or Pam.
0: Sure. Hi, Sue. Thanks so much for having us. This is Lex. Thank you. So, uh, again, you know, I think your intro uh, really does kind of situate the research in the broader context. And just for a high level Mm -hmm. on black women's representation in the workforce, you know, just for background, we're about, black women tend to be about 7% of the U.S. population. But they're only you know, a small fraction of senior management and executive roles in most corporate America. We're talking about to the tune of one, one and a half percent in senior and executive roles. Uh, they account for about 2% of the Fortune 500 board seats, and there are currently zero black female CEOs in anywhere in the Fortune 500. And hmm. you know, going back to what you were saying about the pay gap, we know that that pay gap is persistent for all women, but it's even more egregious when we talk about black women and women of color in general. We find that mm-hmm. black women, um, whereas for women for women as overall group, we're talking about something in the vicinity of 84, 76 cents on the dollar. Estimates vary depending on what study you're looking at, mm-hmm. but for black women, we're talking closer to 63 cents on the white male dollar, 63, 67, um, again, studies kind of vary. But that is a much larger discrepancy, and we're starting to see the impact of intersectionality when we start looking at breakdowns, not just of of women, but women. Let me jump in
2: and, and ask you to define the term intersectionality, which not everyone knows.
0: Sure, sure intersectionality refers to the state that we all live in. None of us are characterized by one identity group. We all are at once members of multiple identity groups. And identity groups are groups that hold meaning that that you share Membership with other people in society. So, your race, for example, is an identity group. Your gender, your age, or generational uh, group is an identity group. And when we start to layer them on top of one another, they don't just come with, you know, additional, for example, identity badges, but rather Mm -hmm. they come with additional meanings, additional advantages, and then in some situations, additional disadvantages. And the research in organizational behavior and sociology, and, and increasingly in psychology, I has Mm -hmm. been working towards identifying the ways in which multiple identity groups combine to either enhance or detract from one another in terms of the benefits or disadvantages that come from different group memberships.
2: Thank you for that very helpful explanation. Uh, But I I jumped in as you were uh, completing a thought about the intersectionality of, of race and gender when it comes to the pay gap for black women.
0: Well, absolutely. It's exactly that. When we look at that pay gap and the the fact that it's much bigger for black women, it describes the way in which intersectionality is having a a, a multiplicative or an increasing effect of the disadvantages of not just being a woman but also being Mm -hmm. black. And And so so in that way, they sort of compound and build on one another. So speaking yeah. from
1: from my experience to uh this is Pam. Yes. I started my career on Wall Street as an investment banker in mm-hmm. the, in the early 80s and boy well, I sure would have benefited by this research knowing that when I walked into the corporate door I was neither going to be looked at as a male or looked at as a white female. Mm-hmm. Um, of which there were more of both categories, and uh i I was completely unaware that uh I would be looked at differently
2: wow and so that 's something that didn 't that you you hadn 't even thought about before entering the workforce, and you had as as I can see and anyone could see from your biography. A you know stellar undergraduate and uh, advanced degree career uh, with a um, having graduated from Yale Law School and an MBA from the Yale School of Management, uh, but none of that prepared you for what you encountered.
1: Strangely, yes, and strangely no. And I'll tell you how. I and if you look further back, I didn't provide you with this background. I went to um, a suburban high school. It was predominantly white uh, my college was the same my law school was the same my mm-hmm. business school was, was the same so when I walked in the corporate door I was um, it was completely normal to me uh-huh. so I wasn't uncomfortable but over time particularly in business situations uh, it became clear that I was looked at A little bit differently Hmm. I didn't it didn't impact how I worked uh, but it I became aware that people saw me differently
2: could you give an example of that
1: I would say the examples were related to uh, advancement opportunities and how what appeared to me and based on my performance reviews, the same you know, level of work and achievement had different results.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That's a, that would be a very tangible example. Uh, the kinds of opportunities that um, I was given uh, at the outset uh, were a little bit different than others. So, I.
2: Less opportunity to expand your career and your impact. Is that what you mean?
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so I had to work a little bit harder and a little bit differently. um, The kinds of things that, uh, you know, Lex and I actually studied when we did our research uh, in order to understand how I needed to be successful or how I could be successful in uh, the corporate environment. Because it was you know in the nineteen uh, late seventies and early eighties early eighties when I started my career, there were few role models
2: mm-hmm. so i'm curious to know more as i'm sure our listeners are about what you think people saw when they looked at you back then, what was it that was i mean aside from the you know the obvious characteristics of who you are as a as a person. What was it about who you were that was distinctive, that was in their minds, uh, perhaps consciously, perhaps not?
1: Well, you might, <laughs> you, you'd have to ask them specifically. Right, of course.
2: <laughs> but <laughs> which is, what did which you is, infer about what they saw? Yeah. From?
1: So, so, what became clear, I was in a service business, um, in financial services, client service business. Uh, There were a number of questions surrounding, would clients be comfortable uh, with a black woman across the table advising Mm -hmm. them on large financial transactions? They had never been in the company Mm -hmm. of a black woman in that, quote-unquote, power position.
3: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: That's an example of, of... Uh, what a client might be thinking, and commensurately, uh, my team members, uh, can we put her in front of that particular client? Do we care if that client is comfortable or not? We know that she's the best person on our team to Mm. make that presentation. How will she be perceived? That's probably not a question that is asked uh, more typically of white males?
2: No, I, I would imagine that rarely, if ever, gets asked. Um, can I... Please. This is Lex may yes. for a moment. I, was... I think
0: that's such a great example, Pam. Um, and, you know, when we were doing this research, the stories we were told were, were, full, were filled with examples of how that difference really was felt. And I think Pam's example really kind of cuts to the to the core of it you know in, in, in saying a little bit more about your background you know in the education in the, during their early years in, in primary education all the way through their master's degrees and, and and other higher education degrees all of these people were being evaluated on much more objective characteristics objective factors mm-hmm. their grades their placement exams performance in the classroom these things were a lot more directly quantified mm-hmm. in the workplace. Although
2: more I have to object- say, as a professor, there's a lot more subjectivity in that process <laughs> I, than you'd I imagine. It, I say
0: it a, and I bite my tongue at the same time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I'm sorry to interrupt. Please continue and yeah, yeah, yeah. about I, this this distinction between the more readily objectively right. identifiable indicators of achievement versus what right. happens later.
0: Right in an MBA classroom, you'll be graded on your the amount of contributions, the performance on exams, things that you can assign a number to, mm-hmm. um, and are usually readily verifiable. Mm-hmm. As soon as we get to the workforce, the, the the standard becomes subjective, becomes far more subjective than it is in a classroom, and the decisions about who gets invited to a sales call or a client meeting or who gets to pitch the proposal becomes more about well, as Tam said, how will this make a client feel? How do we think this may make a client feel? Yes. And decisions become much more subjective, much more variable, depending on who's answering the question. Right. And I think that's the stories we started to see so many more times, where intersectionality started to play a bigger role in the options people had, the the uh, the the opportunities they were given, and and even in some situations, the way they were evaluated.
2: I wonder um, if you could give us just a brief overview of uh, of how you did this research and, and what the big ideas were that came out of it. Lex, can you offer that for us?
0: Sure. So the research we actually started many years ago when I was still in graduate school and uh, it involved, I believe it was Pam's brainchild. Is that does that sound about right, Pam?
1: Yeah, and actually, I don't know if you wouldn't mind if I interrupted, because I'll tell you a little bit of the sequence of how the research got started, which might, might be of interest. It actually, um, the, the first idea came in the early 2000s. I was with one of the two investment banks that I worked for over the course of my career, and one of them, the current one I was at, um, was – a leader on Wall Street on women in leadership, and they were one of the first, if not the first, to decide to hold a senior a senior women's leadership conference. I was asked, as being one of the most senior in the bank at the time, I was asked to join the planning committee by the CFO, who was our first female C- CFO. Mm-hmm. I was very proud to be in the room. And uh, as she, she was giving an overview of this conference, uh, I was daydreaming about how proud my parents would be about hmm. this little black girl in the room where it was happening, so mm-hmm. to speak.
2: What, what, and, w- what <laughs> would your grandparents have thought?
1: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> our our little Pammy. <laughs> yeah. So I was literally daydreaming, and I heard the CFL call my name, but hmm. I I didn't hear the question she asked. She had to repeat it a second time. And she said, well, how many, and she was asking me, how many women of color will be at the senior women's leadership conference? Hmm. My cheeks flamed. I was so thoroughly embarrassed Why? because I hadn't thought about it. Wow! It was like I got in the door. I had drawn the line behind my own heels, and I didn't even think about if my sisterhood would be by my side oh. at that senior leadership conference.
2: So you felt ashamed by that, not I, by just being like so selfishly oriented in your mind? Yes, oh, wow. I did.
1: And I said that was hmm. never going to happen again. And oh. in fact, hmm. we did, uh, I and a few colleagues got together, did the research to answer that question, and it turned out there were going to be three of us out in of, the
2: room. Out of, out of. And out
1: a, of 200 women,
2: so that's that—that's that 1.5 percent that, that you were referring to women earlier, of color, mm-hmm. right?
1: And that was—and exactly. so this organization, as a corporation, was one of the first to start disaggregating women's data and looking at women of color separately, and not just women of color as a group, but Black women, Asian women, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Hispanic women. Uh, later on LGBTQ women. Uh, so that was, um, and then shortly thereafter, I decided that this I wanted to make this my career. I launched Springboard mm-hmm. and had the opportunity to do some research on black women executives. And that's when I engaged and started working with this academic team, of which Lex is a member, and now turning it over to you, Lex.
2: Thank you. (laughs) That's a helpful background. (laughs) Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Yep. And so this is Lex again. Mm -hmm. And so when we joined on, it was um, myself, my colleague, uh, Marla Baskerville-Watkins at Northeastern, and eventually we also asked Jamie Ladge, also at Northeastern University, Mm. to participate in the research. Um, And... Between the four of us in this most recent round, we have really set to the work of unpacking the dozens of interviews that we performed. So, to begin, we started in 2007 contacting um, various women um, within executive levels in their organizations. They were all black women. Um, and we reached many of them through an affinity group. And to be a part of that group, they had to already be senior level VPs or executives. Uh-huh. They had to be responsible for significant PNL. They also, um, and there were a few sprinkled in from areas outside of corporate. So we had a handful of people who were in education, higher education. So uh, maybe one or two deans, um, one or two people from the medical industry, but by and large, the vast majority were um, corporate types. And so, all these when we interviewed them in 2008, so just before the Great Recession really kind of began. And then we had the amazing opportunity to come back and re-interview them for the same length of time as a follow-up in 2014.
2: All right. And so, so, what were the headlines from what you discovered about these women's lives and careers?
0: Well, some brass tacks. I, I think you know Pam really clearly stated the way you know as a you can practically apply intersectionality by disaggregating the data and looking at women of various colors and really looking at that. And one of the things we looked at when when we kind of looked at our own data within black women was to see, well, how many of them moved up, moved out of their firms and stepped down? And we expected, you know, a fairly grim story given the, the global financial crisis. And uh, so much of the media had said, you know, people of color in particular were hit hard. But we found that the majority of the people in our sample either stayed at about their same level or rose above um, so something in the vicinity of um, two-thirds had, had actually progressed in their careers either staying bit in bit in that maybe not the same exact position but they may have jumped to a different company in a similar position or they maybe have a different title but very similar responsibilities but the vast majority were either stable or had stepped up in their careers um, and there was a handful that had either retired um, but the vast majority of those retirements had actually reinvented themselves. There were very few um, women in our sample who had purely retired and, you know, were relaxing, you know, taking care of grandchildren. Most of them had reinvented themselves, repurposed their skills into brand new careers. Um, and then there was a small handful, about 10 out of 60. Um, who had moved um, either down in position or had gone on to a smaller company, maybe doing the same work. So we classified those women as step-downs. But even that was hard to say because so many of them used the opportunity to change in order to find something that was more in line with with what they perceived as their purpose.
2: So all this sounds like a pretty happy story. Am I reading it correctly?
0: At least about the objective
2: facts about their their career outcomes, so far as you right. could discern them, exactly. Oh, and well, what else did you find about their lives and careers that was distinctive and important for readers and listeners to know? Mm-hmm.
3: So I would
0: okay, okay, go ahead, Pam, please. I
1: I would add two characteristics that um, I think came through loud and clear in the research, but also in Lexis current telling you know particularly how do you navigate a global financial crisis and stay on your feet well we had and and lex Lex being the researcher will tell you that you know 60 people is pretty representative we can be pretty certain that this is not an aberrant group but we had a very resilient very confident group of women and other research has shown that 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 black women black women executives are very confident
2: um, uh, is that because it takes a a particular kind of motivation resilience grit character that Mm -hmm. uh, that is required to break through the various barriers uh, such as those you encountered um and so that the the people that you find at the you know rarefied levels of corporate hierarchies are those who are distinctive um, and and particularly resilient.
1: I, I, I would say so, that they have the staying power
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the power to underscore, uh, what Lex said, the, the, the power, and the self-awareness to reinvent themselves, either reinvent themselves within their current uh, organization or reinvent themselves across different opportunities.
2: I imagine that their capacity, those who have been successful, to find various forms of social support uh, from from peers, mentors, sponsors, etc., must be a crucial factor. Yes. This is Lex. Please.
0: It was huge. It mm-hmm. was huge. I, I think there were a number of qualitative characteristics that the that the women embodied that really made them unique. And I think Pam pointed to um, one of the huge ones, which is that sense of hardiness and resilience in the face of challenge. And I, I think a lot of that came out of their backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, Pam described being always in environments, especially in her educational upbringing, where she may have been one of the few. And this was echoed in almost all of the stories that the women told us. They all talked about being one of the only, and that sharpened them for the kinds of challenges that they would face in the workplace. And in addition to that, they also talked about having huge levels of support from their family backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them were you know, many of them were the first in at their level of success. Um, they weren't always the first to go to college or the first to receive a master's degree, but many of them, if not all of them, were one of the first to be at that apex of their career.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And so they... While on the, well, on the one hand, they didn't have a lot of others that looked like them um, that they could reach out to for support. They had huge wellspring of support from their family background, and they pulled on that. It seemed to strengthen and to fortify themselves for the for the for the difficulties of being in the workplace. Mm-hmm. You, you you asked a bit ago if it was primarily a rosy story. And, you know, of course, of course, there's also an underside to being an intersectional minority in a workplace. I think the other side of intersectionality besides being, um, you know, having multiple identities is that it can compound some of the negativity. So there are negative stereotypes associated with being a woman or being a black person, and they found themselves quite literally on the outside of many of the circles that they needed to gain access
2: to. Right. And no, I was so, just commenting on the on the results that you were describing which seemed yeah. to indicate that the women in your study had fared well despite the, you know, the macroeconomic environment that they were facing. Did I misread that?
0: Oh, in some ways they did. I think absolutely in terms of their outcomes, their career outcomes, they absolutely did. And I think there's a lesson in some of the hardships that they endured.
2: Yes. One of the things that you found in your study is that it, it takes longer for black women professionals for their talents, skills, contributions to be recognized. Lex, can you tell us what exactly you found about that and why that is? And then, Pam, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how that relates to your own experience and, uh, and what it means.
0: Sure, Stu. This is Lex. So many of the women talked about having been in their organizations for if not their entire professional careers then the vast majority of it and again the women that we spoke to were already executives in their role right so we only got to really see the people who had made it
3: Mm -hmm. and
0: in that respect they we do have a restricted sample in that in that in that lane but what they showed us was that it took that kind of longevity in order to develop enough relationship power, enough social capital and political capital to overcome some of the um, hostile hostility that came with intersectional invisibility. Um, the difference I think between having a shorter term uh, a shorter tenure and a longer tenure really had to do with the amount of political cachet, the amount of social relationships, the amount of people who would, as one woman told us, walk down a dark alley with you and have your back. Hmm. Um, people who stayed in the organization less time.
2: What did she mean and, by that?
0: Sure. Um We all know about those situations where you find yourself in a position where you need to go out on a limb, you might need Mm -hmm. to take a risk, and you need to have the kind of support uh, from others at your level and above who will be able to back you. Mm -hmm. And many of the women talked about not quite having that or Mm -hmm. thinking that they had it, but then realizing that they didn't. Mm -hmm. And it took time to build up those kinds of relationships. And our paper argues that it takes them more time because they also have to overcome the demographic differences.
2: Yes, I, I could see that. Go ahead, Pam.
0: Yeah, I would uh,
1: say giving um, a a not a different perspective, but looking at another aspect of the research, we found that the most successful women um, of the group that we of the group of successful women that we uh, interviewed the most successful, had had big experiences early on in their careers. So they got to have a longer runway of responsibility. So, you know, somebody who in their late 20s having big people leadership responsibility, or another woman we interviewed was the president of a Division of her company in her early 30s. Well, that gives them a long time. First of all, right. an opportunity to make mistakes early in their career and still recover. Uh, an opportunity to get to know more senior people in the organization sooner. Um, the opportunity to make presentations before the board of directors before you're 40 years old or, in fact, before you're 35 years old. Um, those are the women who are um, you know, As we call it, have the long runway And I think today, when we look at uh, Our uh, millennial generation They're probably not going to stay In corporations as long as The last generation did Including the mm-hmm. generation of black women executives They're going to move around And so we have to uh, they have to think about how do I create that social capital and take it with me yeah. to the new organization.
2: All right, so let's let's get into that. I, I know that there's so much to say about what employers, uh, human capital, you know, advocates. Uh, and, and actors and organizations and and people with managerial authority who look the traditional type, what they must, you know, can and must do, what we need to do as a society with our governmental policy. All that is crucial, the structural changes that are needed. But what's so interesting about your study is that you've got, you know, stories at the individual level that you've made sense of in terms of what people, individuals can do, you know, no matter what the context they find themselves in. So. What are some of the important takeaways in terms of what these women did to make it, to make it, that that you want to share with uh, with our listeners?
1: One thing, Stu, this is this is Pam that you mentioned earlier on the call, and and Lex did as well, is having um, key relationships um, that uh, are within the organization as well as beyond the organization, you know we call in the study uh, conscious relationship crafting, which I'll let Lex say more about, but was one of the really critical success factors and and, and those that those relationships can be portable.
2: okay across across organizational boundaries. Yes. Uh, so what is conscious relationship crafting Lex seems pretty straightforward sure. but how does it what does it look like for these Absolutely. women
0: Absolutely and you know it, we found this to be such a critical tactic and we we identified a number of tactics mm-hmm. that they use to Gather the visibility that they needed—not visibility for being different, but visibility as a professional, as a credible expert in their area. Um, and the relationship crafting was critical. And that we we specifically said conscious because it's mm-hmm. very easy to fall into that which is familiar. And one of our one of our participants put it so well. She said that it's sort of like a, she said the word disease, but it's really sort of like a a regular thing that we all do, which is to fall towards that which is familiar. And in this situation, she was talking about falling towards that which is like you, that which is similar to you. And it is probably fine if you look like the majority of people around you. But when you find yourself in a position where you are visibly different, you have to break out of that natural tendency. And again, it's a tendency that all of us black, white, Men, women, all of us have that to fall towards that which is familiar, mm-hmm. and so they were conscious of breaking out of that familiar comfort um, and uh, breaking the disease of the familiar and looking for opportunities to build relationships with people who would be very different from them. Like how, role, for example, can you give us yeah.
2: an example of that?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, there were a number of women um, who specifically said that they found the best sponsorships, the best mentorships, to come from relationships with white men. And I believe there was a research study um, that was just published uh, last week confirming what we saw in um, the respondents to us. They, she said specifically that. It, developing relationships with white men gave her the opportunity to get a different kind of information than she would have gotten from people who looked just like her. Mm-hmm. Um, not only that, given the data that we see of who occupies senior level and powerful positions in organizations, it's not surprising that the vast majority of those power position holders would be white men. And so there's both an instrumental as well as a qualitative reason why she would be suggesting that the most powerful, the most impactful relationships will come from those the time and the investment you put into relationships across that race and gender
2: line. So digging a little further into that, the The development of of cross race mentoring and sponsoring relationships, um, where, what makes that hard to do?
0: Sure. So part of the thing about mentoring and it's, taking mentoring as an example, there's built in a status differential there, and right. so when you are the mentor, you're expected to be the more senior, the more powerful, the more you know in control of the relationship, um, and in many situations. When that relationship gets crossed, meaning that the person of color or the woman who societally might not have as much power or might not be perceived as high status Mm -hmm. actually is the mentor that can mess around with the mentoring dynamics in such a way that it can make relationships a little bit more dysfunctional. In addition to that, we know that there are some differences uh, that make it difficult sometimes for, for example, white men to give feedback to women of color. Um, There may be stereotypical expectations that um, some women refer to uh, not wanting to fall into the angry black woman stereotype Hmm. if they were to receive negative feedback. So what would happen is... Very frequently they had to search and dig and demand feedback that went beyond oh. positive that mm-hmm. would also give them critical constructive areas that they can work on and improve their chances for having that long, uh, that long runway that Pam was talking about. So they had to work hard and be really conscious of developing those kinds of relationships that would be both developmental but also have an impact on their ability to advance in their organization.
2: So Pam, I wonder, did you do that? As you were coming up, did you have to dig further to get the, the real story from some of the white male uh, people up the chain who were who had some, some constructive criticism to offer you and some advice to give you but they were afraid to because they thought you'd react with anger?
1: You know what? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't, if you're asking my own experience, I don't know if that was the case. I actually had a really great time developing relationships with white male colleagues uh, who were junior, my colleagues, as well as uh, senior white males. And I, I found for myself, yeah. as well as uh, for the most successful of the women we interviewed, those who were willing to share who they are and you know an authentic self um, in their relationships. We're the most successful in developing authentic relationships with, with white males.
2: So so one one sort of conclusion that I, I gather from you, Lex, is the importance of helping other people, especially those who might be uncomfortable, helping them to feel comfortable in, in telling you what they need to tell you. Mm-hmm. Um how did you do it Pam? How did, what what was looking back uh on your your very successful career what made it so easy for you?
1: I will give you an example. Uh, very early on in my career I was uh it was the end of the day and I was one of the only few around everybody was busy working on other assignments and this managing director called me in and he was sitting I was standing the first thing he said was I don't really want to work with you but I have to okay okay so (laughs) so you know all you know all the ladder of inference up and down I'm I'm thinking is it is it you know my gender is it my race is it Hmm. what is this about so I decided not to make assumptions and just listen and he said you haven't had any experience on this kind of transaction, oh. and I don't think you can do it.
2: It was about your 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 expertise it and was about lack, my expertise. his perception that you didn't have the the technical chops.
1: Right. So I could have decided it was a racial thing. I could have decided it was a gender thing. Um, but I decided to put it in the bucket of. He needed to know that the work could get done, would get done, and would get done well.
2: Well, do you think he was he was misattributing your lack of expertise to to you? I mean, was he accurate? Did you believe him? Uh,
1: I, I, what was true was I had not had experience on that kind of transaction. All right. But what wasn't true was perhaps the assumption that I couldn't get it done.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. S- of course,
1: I stayed all night, the next morning, and the next day around, and got it done. Got it done well, and we became really great colleagues. Hmm. And he he took me to lunch at the end of the, uh, the at the end of the successful transaction, and he said, "I'm really sorry. He said That was probably re- pretty crass of me." He says, "That's my personality." <laughs> I decided that I wouldn't make it about my being black and being a female and just make it about his shortcoming Hmm. you know he was rough around the edges and he learned something i learned something we ended up uh... great colleagues and worked on a number of assignments together
0: i think pam's example is exactly what we saw commonly in in the stories that we read from the stories that we, we were told from our, our participants, mm-hmm. they commonly talked about being confronted with what could be perceived as slights directed at their gender or race or, or both, um, and they used it as fuel. It was as if somebody had put a battery in their back, and it forced them, it made them, it motivated them to not just rise above it but really meet the challenge head on and then when it was all said and done they didn't walk away with you know a chip on their shoulder or angry or carrying resentment they were conscious about saying that is a relationship that I'm going to need that's a relationship I want and that's a someone's perspective I don't know where it comes from but I know that it doesn't define me it doesn't define who I am and if I'm going to continue on in this world I'm going to need to be able to work through that hmm. and then after it's all said and done still have that relationship in my back pocket because now that in this case is Pam's uh, example now that he's seen what I can do instead of being a detractor he's an ally he's an advocate
2: yeah uh, and that that story has a happy ending i'm sure there are many stories like that mm-hmm. that don't however right so mm-hmm. Um, what do what do you infer from your observations of the the women in your study about <clears throat> what what people should do who find themselves unfairly judged um, or who you know who are seen as not having the kind of uh, capacity for for you know for success uh, to, to to get through that to pass to somehow contain the, the sense of rage at that kind of injustice so that they can persevere and prove themselves?
0: You know, this is Lex, and I think one of the big-ticket takeaways for me from this research started from the very beginning when Pam and I started talking about this. I was reminded of an earlier uh, quote that I had read uh, about being outsiders within, and it's a term that's used you know, regularly in sociology. Mm -hmm. um, And it really refers to the idea of constantly being an outsider, even within your workplace and your home place. So at work, they are outsiders because they don't look like the norm. And at home, they're also outsiders because they have this, very you know rarefied position in organi- in their corporate life mm-hmm. and what they get from that is a sense of self-reliance and, and and confidence that drives them through some of the difficulty of it and a part what comes out of being that outsider is recognizing that there are benefits to having this intersectional status we found that black the black women we talked to didn't seem to have the same negative stereotypes that white women or black men had. They were able to be sort of released from some of them because some of those stereotypes canceled each other out, so
3: Mm -hmm. to speak. Mm
0: -hmm. And in other ways, they also found that in some situations, they were – double outsiders. And so I think what many of them pointed to was that they were able to look for the opportunities in being different, mm-hmm. as well as try to avoid mm-hmm. the, the disadvantages. And it made them agile. It so, made them mm-hmm. able to see where they, were, they could take negative energy and turn it into
2: motivation. Before we go, I wonder if each of you could say what you want to make sure our listeners know about what you found in your study. Pam?
1: There are two things that I would like to emphasize, and that is looking at every opportunity as a great opportunity, whether it is something big and scary and therefore you have to take a risk on, it's, it's worth, worth the risk, and our invisibility, in some cases, plays to our advantage in maybe even surprising people about how well you perform. On the other hand, taking a small opportunity mm-hmm. uh, because that's all you can get, and then doing a bang up job mm-hmm. and, and taking a victory lap and ha- helping you become more visible from that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Every opportunity is a great opportunity.
2: It's an optimistic view. Uh, it's yes, so, it is. So nice to hear. Lex, what's your uh, most important idea that you want listeners to take away?
0: I think intersectional invisibility has been a really interesting area to study because it tells us about the benefits as well as the constraints of being different. And I think that when you hit a wall where you're doubly stigmatized, but yet at the same time no one knows what to do with you, because as Pam said, it's a, you're a surprise. You don't, nobody knows what to expect it really forced the women in our sample to look within and look for what was real about them. And to me, it's a story of of finding your authentic voice, finding how to lead authentically. And that is what resonated with the people in their lives and what I think what made them successful.
2: And that's available to most people, I would imagine. To, to... I,
0: I think it's a lesson we can all take
2: things from. Well, uh, Pam and Lex, I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. It's it's so important, uh, and uh, it's great for you to take the time to to share the big ideas with our listeners. How can people find out more about your research?
0: So, the paper that we've been talking about, again, is called Making the Invisible Visible Paradoxical Effects of Intersectional Invisibility on Career Expenses, Experiences of Executive Black Women at Work. And you can find that at the Academy of Management Journal. Um, we continue to work on other research, and we will likely be presenting areas of this uh, research in upcoming academic conferences. And then Pam has a variety of opportunities as well.
1: Right. I have uh, Springboard has a website, and I'm not hawking my business, but there is www.springboardleadership.com slash research. Um, this research, uh, there will be a link to it, but it's you have to get it through uh, the journal. But there is other uh, research that led to the journal article uh, on uh, black women executives and another uh, piece of research that uh, – that Lex and I collaborated on, the Everest Project, Women Leading Change and Innovation, where we looked at uh, women across the different ethnicities Hmm. and how they powerfully lead innovation in their organization. So all of that is on the website, free for the public.
2: Fantastic. Thank you again for joining us and for your great work. Really appreciate it.
1: Stu, this was great. Thank you so much.
2: I hope you found my conversation with Lex Smith and Pam Calton to be eye-opening and that it perhaps shifted some of your own thinking about how others see you and about how to take advantage of the opportunities that are in front of you. So here is a challenge for you, an invitation. Take a moment to reflect on your career so far. And try to draw a picture in your mind of an episode in which you hit a bump in the road. Things went wrong. You hit an obstacle because of some aspect of who you are as an individual. Something that is telling, distinctive about you could be your race, gender, sexual orientation, religious beliefs, family structure physical attributes, anything about you. My guess is that, if you're like most people, you have encountered something of this sort, an obstacle you face because of who you are, some aspect of who you are somewhere in your your history, in your past. So now looking back, what lesson Might this episode teach you? What can you take from this experience about who you are and how you can, in the future, use this insight, this lesson, to serve the interests you have in trying to do what you're here to do in the world, to make some kind of positive change? Let me know what you come up with and what happens if indeed you act on any such ideas that emerge. In this reflection, I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me directly. It's friedman at or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership. Be a better leader. Have a richer life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends family, and co-workers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.
0: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.